Welcome to the Winning with Shopify podcast. This is the podcast that will teach you to take your Shopify store and turn it into a business-growing sales machine. It has the latest marketing, email, sales, SEO, and social media advice, and also has strategies and tips from the experts without fluff. Your host is Nick Truman. He's a Shopify expert and an education partner with the Shopify-approved course, 1,000 Sales and Beyond. He's the CEO of JustAskParker.com, a global specialist marketing agency for Shopify owners. Nick has over 13 years experience in digital marketing from PPC and SEO through to digital transformation of businesses. He's helped hundreds of brands from startup Shopify stores through to international enterprises that operate in hundreds of countries. Nick will be sharing his knowledge and interview the experts to help you in your journey to success. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. Now, here's your host, Nick Truman. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Winning with Shopify podcast. For those of you who haven't been listening to the last few episodes, my name's Nick. I'm the new CEO here at Just Ask Parker. Caroline is currently on maternity leave, and by the time you're listening to this, she would have had her baby. I got a picture from her yesterday, so her and baby are both doing really, really well. Um, we've had quite a few emails asking us how she's getting on, and so far, so good. Every time she sent me a picture as well, she's got a massive smile on her face, as you can imagine. But today, we're going to be talking about something a little bit different. We've got a very special guest called Brian Miller. And we're going to be talking about entertainment thinking and how to entertain your audiences with your marketing. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Brian. It's great to have you here. Oh, it's great to be here, Nick. Thank you so much for asking me. So welcome to the podcast. Before we dive in, please tell us a little bit about your background and what you're doing today at Paddle Consulting. Sure. So yeah, I've, I've had a, a rather kind of hybrid career. I'm a bit of a mutt. So I started in advertising. I was a uh, copywriter, so somebody who writes advertisements. And I worked for some big companies like Saatchi and Ogilvy in uh, some big cities like London, Paris, New York, all the, the Chanel cities. And uh, I did uh, worked on all sorts of things, including a global campaign for IBM, which was named as Campaign of the Decade. So after that, I kind of lost the attention span to write 30-second TV spots anymore and moved into really being more interested in the products and what was was sort of behind them and working with designers on um, creating new products and doing research. So I have did that for about 10 years working with companies like Nike and Hewlett-Packard, SC Johnson. And uh, during that time, I really got interested in how creatives can work with data and how you can start to use data as something that inspires you to do something new rather than simply as something which I think a lot of advertising people use it for, which is as a a sort of rear view mirror to work out what went wrong and what went right. I've also along along the way um, been one of the sort of founders of a um, a successful games company called uh, Fail Better Games, which has uh, three very successful games on the market at the moment, which has uh, hundreds of thousands of players and um, lots of awards and reviews and things like that. But uh, what I really started about four years ago thinking about was how advertising was not working on the internet. And it seemed I'd, I'd sort of been away from advertising for, by that stage, you know, a sort of decade. And when I saw ads on the internet or when I noticed them at all, they just seemed to be playing by a lot of the same rules that I remembered from my time in, in advertising, which now really seems in the, the today's age like, you know, sort of centuries ago, and that they hadn't really evolved 
which kind of surprised me because when you think about when television came along, advertising agencies threw themselves into the opportunity of television and that what they didn't do was just go, oh, fantastic, now I can run a poster for 30 seconds in front of people on TV. They looked at TV, they understood how it worked, they understood sketch shows worked, that uh, documentaries worked, that uh, demonstrations worked. And they used those things and, you know, news and stuff like that. And they, they made little miniature versions of those kind of programs uh, to inform and entertain people in order to sell advertising. And it's kind of what we see today is a sort of, I think, failure of an industry's thinking to evolve with the new medium. And so really Paddle was set up by me and my um, partner, Tori, who came out of uh, television. So she was a producer on all sorts of shows like Pop Idol and 8 Out of 10 Cats, and um, but also had worked in programmatic advertising as well. And she had a similar sort of sort of discontent with the way people were approaching advertising. And it seemed to us that there was a better way of doing it, that uh, we could sort of see that there were brands, some of them very big, like um, Nike or Victoria's Secret, some of them much, much smaller. Um, and talk about some of those like, like Root Health cereals who I've worked with for a long time. And they really think about things in a very different way. They think about the internet as an entertainment medium. They are there to entertain and really they are there to to sort of they they understand what their audience likes and they give them more of that rather than trying to sell them something and trying to sort of beat people up into into buying something so what we set out to do was really ask a, a question that is so simple that you kind of think surely somebody has has done this before but you know, we've we've spent four years looking for the answer, and believe me, if I could have taken a shortcut, I would have. Um, which was really just to ask the question: What entertains people on the internet in in life? What uh, what makes people laugh? What makes them lean forward? What makes them take notice? And we've done a huge amount of work using big data techniques, looking at sort of all sorts of content and uh, advertising, and just the stuff that is out there online, especially, um, you know, what goes viral and things like that. And now worked across 23 countries with over 35,000 people to understand what they like and dislike. So what we've created is a big data model, which predicts for any particular audience, what will entertain them and just as importantly, what will not. And we work with all kinds of brands from uh, small ones like Rude Health through to very big ones like um, Santander and Asda and Pernod Ricard to help them reach new audiences and to create more compelling content for the, the audiences they currently have. Amazing. I mean, I, we, we agreed some questions at the beginning and you've gone through at least three of them. <laughs> so my job is being done perfectly here. So thank you, Brian. Sure. Um, I've got a couple of questions about what you've just said which I think should, should lead us in some interesting avenues as well. The first one is you, you talk about entertainment thinking, um, you know, on your website and some of the work we've done with you guys. Could you expand on that a bit? Like, what is entertainment thinking? Like, what is, you know, what is an obvious sort of on-the-ground change that a business has made that you've worked with where they've taken their thinking, not, not just their thinking necessarily, but actually their marketing and taken it from being not entertaining to entertaining? Are there, are there quick wins to be had there or is it, this big complicated process that takes, you know, hours of spreadsheeting and post-it notes on walls and stuff. What 
What are your thoughts? To think about um, entertainment thinking, it, it might be worth talking about the, the sort of old advertising thinking. Sure. And uh, then to sort of compare and contrast. So, so classical advertising thinking is that you work really, really hard to find one thing that you want people to remember about your brand. So with BMW, it's the ultimate driving machine. It's, you know, it's active driving pleasure. If you want to to sort of cruise around, you know, listening to Mozart, there is a Lexus for you. But if you want to be actively driving, enjoying driving, then that's what BMWs are for. And they have really banged away at Ultimate Driving Machine for a couple of decades. And they have a single, uh, so a single thing that they're saying, which is Ultimate Driving Machine, a single look and feel, which is sort of. Um, glistening steel and Teutonic seriousness, and you know lots of close-ups of bits of car and stuff like that. So they, they, you know, they have a very definite aesthetic. They have a very definite message, and they they just rinse and repeat. As, you know what is sometimes in the advertising industry called matching luggage. You know you can you can tell a BMW ad from you know. 50 meters away. And that worked really well when you did two or three campaigns a year, had, you know, some print and poster, a few car launches, things like that. That was really good. What it really doesn't work for is the always on internet, because what that just becomes is really repetitious. And if you look at a brand that is essentially taken its magazine advertising, its matching luggage, and thrown it onto Instagram, what you just see is this kind of sea of repetition of here's a shot of our pack, here's our you know sort of a flat lay of you know our product. Oh, and it's it's mint flavored, so everything is blue. And you just think, well, why would I follow that? Why why is that at all interesting? Um, when you look at entertainment thinking, so if you think like an entertainer, a great example is Victoria Beckham. Right, who has an incredibly successful clothing line. You know, huge margins, very very high end. But you look at her social media feed and, you know, there's pictures of her, there's pictures of her kids, there's pictures of, um, you know, the, as their social media team once told us, uh, every, every, every time engagement is going down, we, we throw a picture of David with his, his top off um, into the mix and uh, suddenly you know, engagement and likes go right up again. I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not not everybody has that resource, of course, of uh, ripped hubby. Sure, uh, but but uh, but it yeah it it you know hey you know use what use what you got. But she will also get quite angry about stuff, or at least you know her social media team is in the background, so they're doing ads about making sure that young women vote. There's quite a lot of Spice Girls girl power feminism is 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 still in there and you know she will have the occasional rant and that um th you know somebody like that who is not has not gone online being a brand she has gone online being a famous celebrity is i think somebody that brands can really learn from and another great example is is rude health which has always behaved like that online and again it will you know, it doesn't have a single tone of voice. It doesn't have a single look and feel. And it will, yes, it will do the, you know, the nice servings of breakfast and stuff like that. But they will also sponsor naked unicycling and 
bog snorkeling and swimming in the serpentine and all those kind of things. But they will also get up and really rant about Kellogg's and evil cereals and all of these kind of things. And, you know, Nick, um, who is, is, is the sort of co-owner of it, will literally get on a soapbox and just kind of yell at the camera about homogenized milk or the, the you know, the tyranny of corn farmers and things like this or, you know, big agriculture. So it behaves in a way that is... Um, Traditional brands, brand thinking is all about consistency. And really, the new brand thinking is all about coherence. So it's not about the idea that, oh, is this on tone of voice? Is this our look and feel? But it's, does this seem to come from the same personality? And because we're all multifaceted, right? We're all, you know, you can tell a joke, but you can also become really, really serious about something. And why can't brands do that? And I think, you know, it's one of the, the interesting things we've seen with things like, you know, the Black Lives Matter um, protests, that there are some brands who have moved more kind of easily and comfortably into a space of talking about something very serious. And, you know, other brands that have struggled because they're a, a cartoon character on a, on a box of cereal. And, how do I find a way to to talk about these things? So, I I, I think yeah. The, I mean, the, the part of the quick fixes are really unthinking things and unlearning some of the things that you maybe learned about marketing about um, you know the the sort of value of consistency and the value of you know sort of having a USP at all costs and really becoming comfortable with the idea of being more multifaceted and finding a range of topics and a range of tones of voice that you're you're comfortable speaking in. I mean Patagonia is another great example of a company that has you know it, it's it's all about enjoying the outdoors but they can be absolutely passionate and really furious and angry about the despoiling of US national parks or you know sort of deforestation in in Brazil on the other hand they can be incredibly funny just with climbers you know not taking themselves too seriously and singing songs with ukuleles and they will also you know celebrate those same climbers as sort of hyper athletes you know conquering impossible mountains and you know and all of that is encompassed in their communications and in their content and there's again nobody at patagonia is sitting there with a brand bible going oh we don't do jokes no we can't do that and you know that is the challenge is getting out from sometimes what we call logo cop in uh, in an organization Definitely. And I think, I mean, there's some, some great examples there. You know, clearly you've, you've been around the block a little bit and seen lots of different ways that brands communicate. I guess one question I've got, and probably quite a few of our listeners will be sitting there thinking, okay, every brand you've mentioned is absolutely enormous. I'm one of three or four people in the business. I've got my little online shop. What, what sort of things, you know, and admittedly it's not a question I prepped you with, but what sort of things do you think a small brand can do on a simple scale where they don't have huge budgets to be thinking about, okay, social media content or shooting lifestyle shots or spending hours with a PR consultant working out where do we stand on Black Lives Matter or Me Too or any of these movements? What is there anything simple they can start to do just even on their web pages or just with their own smaller social media feeds or their small audiences? Yeah, I, well, I, I do think finding a voice on social media is is a fantastic first step and experimenting and just doing a sort of a volume 
and and finding somebody within your organization who is comfortable doing it so i i think there's one of my favorite twitter accounts at the moment is henry southern books which is an antiquarian bookseller which is is just in uh, in in central london in the theater district just off st martin's lane and there's there's obviously a a, a young person who works there who is just a very natural comedian on Twitter and is producing these in fantastic, almost kind of flights of fancy about there's, we, we have a book here, which is an 18th century book of, uh, uh, about ancient Egypt. And it's clearly cursed and it's fallen on four people and three people have returned it. Do not buy this book. And he just tells this extraordinary story about this book. And, you know, it, it gets traction. It gets, you know, sort of, you know, people start to share it. Um, you know, and again, that's, that's, you know, that's just one way of doing it. But I, I do think starting small, starting in social media and not worrying too much about first that you're only getting one or two likes and, uh, you know, that, that it, doesn't, it doesn't start immediately. Um, and I think the more that you do it, the more you're just putting stuff out there and not thinking too hard about it, um, the better. Um, and I think the other thing is, you know, entertainers know their audience, right? And one, one of the things about being a small business is that you're closer to that audience. You know, you're not the, you know, the, the, the CEO who comes in from, you know, McKinsey to run a, a, a big toy company and, you know, you're, you're, you're sort of miles away from, from kids. If you have started, a, you know, a board game company because you're passionate about board game, then, you know, passionate board gamers are your people. And you should have a really good sense of those people and an instinct for what they like and, and don't like. And I think one thing to do is to sit down and think, you know, not, not about, again, the classic advertising thing, but to go and think about the competition. I think go and look at what are the social media accounts? Who are the entertainers that these people really love? You know, who are the YouTube gurus for these people? And to start to kind of reverse engineer what they're doing and think, you know, how can I do a little bit of that? How can I find something in there that I'm comfortable doing myself or that somebody in my organization is comfortable doing? And how can we do our own little version of it? I think, you know, we now have the means to produce so much amazing stuff just on a phone. And again, don't worry too much about the quality or polish or anything. If you have a fun idea, if you have a rant um, and something that you feel very passionate about it, get somebody to point a phone at you and just go at it and just put it online. Go for volume. Don't go for quality and finish because in the end, it's like when everybody's slick, nobody is slick. You used to have to go to quite a high-end restaurant before you'd see a typeset menu. Now, when you're in a really posh restaurant, you know it's a posh restaurant because the menu is handwritten. That sort of idea of somebody just holding a phone and talking into it is just very authentic. So, so yes, go for yeah, go for volume, go for authenticity. I think a really interesting point as well. Something you just touched on there very briefly was about the actual filming of the video and it being done on a phone. Someone made the point recently on a podcast I was listening to, where they said, "Why do you go for these super high ends, you know, kind of clean cut videos? Like, yes, you can get amazing slow motion and stuff like that. But actually, most things when you know when we look at Google Analytics, most things are actually watched on a mobile device now." So you've got to think, actually, you don't need a TV budget to have a TV ad because people don't watch TV. You need a mobile phone budget to create a mobile phone ad because people are going to watch it on a mobile phone. And actually, some of the smartest adverts I've ever seen have actually been done on phones. There was one of a courier who was cyclists only um, in New York. And they, all their videos um, and all their adverts they were using were videos from using GoPros 
stuck on the helmet of one of their bikes and they had this uh this camera they used it was absolutely tiny it was half the size of an iphone 8 um you know to put it in perspective and this thing was a it had a gyro inside it was a 360 and you could actually watch this journey going on and they sped it up and it was amazing and the point they made was when they sped it up they realized that actually new york has its own color scale and certain um districts of new york going from um, I, I don't know the geography of new york very well but certainly when they were in brooklyn the color scheme was very brown compared to when they were in the other end of town where there's lots of you know manhattan where all the skyscrapers are it was very blue and glass orientated and i think certainly things like that make a lot of sense and something else you just said you know in relation to to my question about small businesses one of our clients uh, they sell a lot of pet stuff online and they've really struggled to get any kind of social media story or anything else running and one night after a couple of drinks the uh, the managing director the owner of the business he posted a picture of his dog on and he accidentally posted it on the work account instead of his own account and he said something like how annoying are dogs when you've just fed them and they've got their their little head on your knee and you're sitting on the sofa trying to ignore them and it got more traction than all of their social media for the last three months combined. Um, and his first reaction was, well, let's sell, you know, let's, let's get rid of and, and sack the social media agency. What are they doing? What do they know? Look what I've done. But actually, I think, as you just said, the, he'd, he'd actually caught on some entertainment thinking. His dog now, which he is his wife's dog, he kind of resented the animal. He now loves this animal because this animal is now the, the social media face of the business. And actually, he's turned something which actually started as a bit of an accident has now become a whole new thing because it's entertaining. You know, people now, they, they follow him to be like, oh, where's the dog been today? Whose desk is the dog sitting at in the office? You know, and it started to create a bit of traction. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's exactly what you were, what you were just saying. Exactly. It's fascinating. I, mean, I think a lot of successful businesses who've been successful online talk about, yeah, there's the, that sort of breakthrough moment. I mean, we know the guys at Mirabeau Wine, which have you know, become very successful rosé wine um, makers. And... Um, Mirabeau actually came about, it was a, a not dissimilar thing. And uh, I think wine was was probably involved as well in that um, the founder did a video during a, a lunch where he'd forgotten a corkscrew and he shows you how to open a bottle of wine with a shoe. And that has got, I think, millions of, of views on YouTube now. Uh, it's, you know, just a, a very, very simple video, but, he, you know, he does it with some charm. I think it was Kellogg's um, who recently posted a video of how a uh, cereal box actually works. I don't know if you've seen this. It was going viral around Facebook recently. No. The cereal box, you know, you've got the top bit with the two flaps, well, the four flaps, the two little ones and the two big ones. Mm -hmm. Everybody, myself included, I try and get that top bit to work. The whole box folds about halfway down. Right. And I couldn't believe it. I watched this video and I actually, it's the first time I've ever saved a video on Facebook. I saved this video, got home and said to my, uh, my, you know, another bit of news, I got engaged this week. So my now fiance, I better get that right. Um, she and I got home and we were sort of sitting there with the iPhone out, you know, like here's the Facebook, trying to get it to work. And we found out on Cheerios works fine, but not on Rice Krispies. And again, it's things like that. I mean, you talk about entertaining content. Suddenly Kellogg's a front of mind. For me. It doesn't mean I went out and bought a box initially, but that is exactly what you've been talking about. The entertainment thinking. And suddenly showing somebody you've had this tool in your pocket or in your cupboard in the kitchen all your life and you've never realized what it actually does. And I think that there's elements like that that I think can be so exciting. And again, it, I think I followed them after that because I had a look and this was one of four or five videos they had posted. And actually it was, it was their own fans and audiences posting funny things and sending them in. They were just sharing them. They were just, you know, somebody saying, hey, Kellogg's, I've just worked out how your boxes work. You know, and everybody thinks I'm an idiot or everybody th thought they were an idiot for not knowing how these boxes worked initially. But here it is. And Kellogg's went, yep, that's entertaining. Share. And it, as we're saying, it's you might start with one or two likes on your posts and sharing 
customer content might be a million miles away right now. But, you know, you start to build traction with this stuff and people will also look back. There is no kind of one winning post you're expecting to put up, I think. And I think the other point to make as well, just, just on this is social media is not a specific direct to consumer marketing tool. You know, it's not, it's not Google ads where somebody's specifically searching a problem wanting to click through social media, the brand of your website. We're talking here about long-term, you know, how is somebody going to engage with this brand for five, 10, 20 years, as opposed to what a lot, what a lot of digital brands, I think, and I got another question from this as well, Brian, digital brands, I think have lost the art of marketing. I think it becomes so much about getting the SEO tags on the website right, you know, saying it's from somebody who does SEO, getting the tags right, getting the right keyword in here, this bit in there. Actually, I've seen websites that look awful, rank really well, because, you know, you can call it entertainment, you can call it just good marketing, but they have a bit of a story. But would you agree, Brian, I, I say this quite a lot, that marketing is the thing that's lost from digital marketing, that digital marketing is focusing too much on the ones and zeros and not enough sometimes on the brand story and entertainment. Would, would you agree with that? What, what are your thoughts? Yes, yeah, so I, I, I do think so. I, mean, I, I think ultimately that one of the things in, you know, have, having said this about, you know, sort of tearing up bits of marketing rulebook, there are a lot of the, the, the sort of rules of marketing that don't really change. One of those is is salience. There's a story from long ago, which is, when people sold insurance door to door, that someone would knock on the door and they would say, "Hello, I'm from the Prudential," and they say, "Oh, the man from the Pru, come in, come and have a cup of tea." And uh, somebody would knock on the door from Cornhill and tell her, "I'm I'm from Cornhill. Who? Uh, we sell insurance." Oh, well, I've never heard of you. So Cornhill just went out and um, sponsored the test matches, and then the conversation went, "Hello, can I talk to you about insurance? I'm from Cornhill." And they go, "Who?" And you go. You know, like the Cornhill, you know, the cricket, the test matches. They go, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, come in. You must be big. So and that, that simple idea of salience, uh, you know, is, is absolutely critical. You know, when you are walking through a supermarket in an absolute trance, then you tend to go for products that you've heard of. And yeah, exactly. So if you've you know, just seen a load of very entertaining stuff on YouTube from Kellogg's, it's you know, the same as if they had just wallpapered all the street that you just drove down with, with Kellogg's ads. It's sort of, you might not have registered them in a conscious way, but they're just kind of, it's, it's there in your mind as the easy one. And, you know, ultimately, you know, as we know from behavioral economics, our, our brains tend to go for easy solutions. So whatever is top of mind just wins for the stuff that we don't really want to think about. And that's the same is true when you're downloading an app, right? You know, you're downloading an app and there's half a dozen different apps that will do the same thing. But if there's one that you've kind of vaguely heard of or the logo looks familiar or it kind of feels a bit bigger or you know, the other thing, obviously it's had 10,000 downloads, you know, your brain goes, okay, that's a good shortcut. That one looks good. The first time digital brands really think about marketing is in their you know, second or third round of VC funding, where a VC says, okay, you've got a product, you've got proof of concept, you've got some customers. Now, here is 2 million quid go and market the heck out of it. And they go a bit deer in headlights because I had this conversation a while ago with somebody who was saying, yeah, so I d I'm just going to phone up Saatchi and Saatchi. And I said, is that because they're the only ad agency you've ever heard of? Which is salience, right? I mean, well done, Saatchi, for doing that. But uh, they sort of sheepishly went, yeah. And, you know, <laughs> thinking you wouldn't do that with anything else, but it's sort of like I've got this money and I've got to get rid of it somehow. Is not really a marketing strategy. So having that baked into your plan from early on, which is who are our audience? What do they love? What territory can we own 
and and also defend when inevitably the copycats arrive is is really critical and it should be something that you know entrepreneurs are thinking about and the vcs are asking about and again i think there's an awful lot of time that is put in in all digital startups to the vc pitch and a lot less time devoted to the actual pitch to customers who are ultimately going to be the people who are, who are paying your wages. And I wonder how many more VCs would be queuing at the door if you'd done that bit first, because they would be saying, well, this is an amazing brand. Look them up on Crunch or whatever the name of the tool is, you know, that all the sort of B2B techie startup companies use and go, oh, they've never had any funding. Well, who backs them? Oh, I can't find anybody. Well, actually, I'm going to approach them now and have a conversation. It's a lot easier than you're on the front foot being approached as opposed to you know, which a lot of businesses I know have spent years of their lives just running around looking for the next bit of cash. Whereas if you get that entertainment thinking right, you know, I've always had a philosophy with, with my business that I'd much rather be funding things out of cash that's coming in than looking for investment. I know every business is unique, but I think, you know, certainly getting that marketing bit right, which is where, you know, going back to Shopify, some of the, um, given that we are talking about Shopify today, because it's the, the, the name of the podcast, but going back to Shopify, Gymshark and other brands, they've just nailed it in terms of who their customer is. Now, some of that might be by accident, but they know who their customers are. Gymshark is a brilliant example, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think, I mean, not only the fact that they were the reason that Shopify Plus exists, as far as I can tell. No one's given me a, a confirmed yes or no from Shopify, but it, uh, it looks like Shopify built the Shopify Plus offering just for Gymshark. It was a sort of, you know, they're on Magento, it's all going wrong, and we can offer something simple from a technical perspective, but they had that brand already. Now, question for you, Brian, and a bit of context first is we get approached quite a lot by companies, you know, for SEO, PPC, marketing strategy, digital advice, et cetera. And one of the things we always ask them is who's your target audience? You know, like, who are they? What are they doing? And I now have a second question. I always follow that up with whatever they tell me, unless they're incredibly specific, which is very rare. The follow-up question I always have is, and do this audience actually exist? Can you prove that they exist? Can you prove they're out there? And the reason I ask that, and the question really for you is, how do you define your audience when, I also make another point, which is, you know, when people are so irrational, they don't really know what they want. You know, I know I, well, I think I want a new car. And the reason I say I think is I might have been shopping for a car for six months, but I might actually end up keeping my current one if I get a better deal on it, if that's the most important thing to me. Or the garage I take it to to service, if I drop a hint to them like, yeah, once it's serviced, I'm going to put it on the market. They'd be like, why would you do that? We could put some new tires on it, sort the visuals out. And actually, with, for, you know, for £500 or $500, we could actually make this car look pretty much brand new. That's a lot cheaper than moving cars at all, you know, even just given the insurance and tax costs of doing that in the UK. So my question really is, how do, you, how do you sort of define, okay, this is our target audience? Do you look forwards? Do you look at the data looking backwards? Or is there a tool people can use? Or is it just a, like you're saying about social, just chuck some stuff out and see what sticks? What are your thoughts? It's a really good question. I think it's one that as a small shop owner, you should really have a very good take on because, you know, you, you have designed this product or this, this suite of products or services, or you've, you've brought them together for somebody. And I think being able to describe those people in a way which makes them very real, and it doesn't have to be this kind of incredibly glowing thing as well. I, I think sometimes people, you know, and, and I see this all the time in really big companies, uh, that they have this fantasy of this incredibly deeply cool person who uses their not very deeply cool product. And you're yes. kind of thinking, <laughs> you know, yeah, maybe. And I think that, you know, there's, the, the, there's also ways of thinking about it sometimes, which is, yes, the Jeep 
has their the fantasy jeep owner who is a australian cattle rancher and you know who sort of is you know super rugged and goes on adventures and and bloody bar and their real user who's a you know a suburban mum with you know busy life and kids and you know sort of needs somewhere to put a, a latte but also loves to do outdoors things at weekends and maybe you know kind of used to do a lot more of that before she had kids and sort of this is is somehow kind of connects her to the promise that she will be doing those things again so i think kind of having a sort of realism about it and also making them really recognizable i mean a couple of my favorites was was max hastings when he was editor of the telegraph uh somebody said we're going to get a brand consultancy and to do you know to define our audience and he said we don't need that let me tell you who our audience is it's somebody who thinks they want a serious newspaper but actually doesn't <laughs> which is just brilliant you sure. know that's that is the telegraph it's like you know it's the daily mail um in a serious suit and you know or again Tra- trader joe's in the us which is this kind of wonderful aladdin's cave of amazing flavors and a thousand different kinds of peanut butter and spice and stuff like that their ceo or founder always says that my target market is an assistant professor of humanities at a small college town university who drives a really really beaten up volvo and i think obviously for the purposes of digital and seo and stuff like that you have to use demographics and psychographics and all of those things but when you're talking or thinking creatively about designing products designing services the more specific you can be about that person the more you kind of go you know that telegraph reader oh yes i know him you know he's probably a him and you know i know the red trousers that he wears and the loafers that he has and the slightly beaten up subaru that he has that's got a lot of dog hair in it and i sort of know what his house is going to smell like then you can really sort of think that about that person sort of build them out and again that's it's a real designer trick is is design around personas and and you know jim shark again you know they know who that's for right you know it's 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 kind of that girl capital t capital g in the gym who is kind of shredded super intimidating and uh and kind of knows it and her boyfriend you know who is kind of 22 and quite angry and they know those people they are their people and their social media is full of those people having fun showing off being silly having a laugh but also kind of you know being passionate about what they do and so so i think really try and turn that person into somebody real whether it's or you know grab them out of you know a character from a tv show or something like that you know tear a picture out of a magazine be visual bring that person to life or maybe it's just one of your friends or something like that or somebody you know who loves the board games that you create and just kind of think we just want to make make it for that person you know if you've got that person in mind then i think everything else flows much more easily creatives agencies understand it designers understand it and uh, and ultimately you can start to build out and try and understand that person through facebook's look alike data sure and i think there's some really good points there but i'm going to make a totally counterpoint to everything you've just said based on something i heard a few years ago and it's it's not to say i disagree at all i do agree with certainly you know as you mentioned getting the brief to the creative agency the creative agency are always all they do basically in the in the kind of pitching initial meetings the discussions is ask questions to try and find out who is it we're trying to get this thing in front of and then we'll tell you what sort of things 
you need to do that we can do for you, etc. But something completely counter to that, um, which I mentioned earlier, is that humans are quite irrational and they don't really know what they want. You know, I mentioned the car example as well. And I think when it comes to looking at audience, we're always a little bit cautious to get too specific with personas. So we did this with Virgin Group for one of their specific divisions years ago, where we were looking at an analytics problem and they came up with all these big personas. And I sort of said, right, forget who they are and everything else. Actually, everybody's got the same problem on this website and I can prove that with the data. And we proved that and we made a change and it had a little overlay explaining you're about to do this. Is that okay? Yes or no? And that solved every single problem, which sounds really simple when I explain it's, it's an overlay. I mean, that was, I think it was about $140,000 project for them <laughs> to find that out. But it solved a huge amount of problems. And I think I just wanted to make the point that, you know, just because you look at your data and your analytics, it doesn't mean specifically that you have to target that audience or even that that ex- audience exists yet. So the point I was, you know, sort of hinting at earlier, just sort of, again, I want to see what you'd say, Brian, but just because the audience doesn't exist today doesn't mean they won't exist tomorrow. And you, brands absolutely influence that. I mean, the fact that every, you know, dad of every family dresses up in red every Christmas is because a brand changed the color of their, you know, it's a classic example everybody uses. But you think about how widespread that is because a brand made a change to their, um, to their branding. You know, I read that the place Santa came from, he used to wear green because it meant that you wouldn't see him on his way over because all the trees were green. You know, that, that's, I don't know if that's absolutely correct. That's what I read the other day, which makes a lot of sense. And I think the, the point being that just because there's only 50 people in the world who match the persona that you want to go for, doesn't mean that other people won't buy into it. So the example of Gymshark, actually, I do not look like any of the Instagrammers or models on the Gymshark site whatsoever, but I'm an avid customer. And because what I'm looking at on the screen is actually what I want to become or what I'm aiming at. And the more I think about it, the more it's completely irrational and I won't ever become that because I, you know, I will not adopt the lifestyle of, you know, protein shakes and all the rest of it these guys have done to get to where they are. However, again, I think the point, the, the point really is that the persona doesn't necessarily have to be a looking backwards or what's out there. The persona can be what are we going to create? You know, and Apple's very much done that and massively influenced the workplace. And I appreciate a lot of people listening to this will be small Shopify stores just starting out. And I think, again, the point is try and capture onto something that is entertaining that people really want to think about and people also want to buy into and engage with. You know, there's a classic thing of what you see in the mirror is not what's being projected back. It's actually based a lot on how your mind's been conditioned. Yes, I mean, it's, it's, it's a little bit different when you've got something broken on a website or, you know, it's, it's a bit like your thing with the car is you don't need a marketing persona to know that people who show up at your garage with a broken car just want their car fixed. It would be more around the idea that are they the kind of people who want to be greeted by a guy covered in grease who's clearly been doing this for 40 years and is, you know, sort of elbows deep in in another car? Do they want to be greeted by somebody wearing a sort of science fiction tunic um, and be offered a, you know, a sort of range of Nespresso? And I do think the thing then is once you've got that persona, yeah, because it's it's a challenge, your persona is then super specific and how you grow out of that. And I think the the way to do that is often to look um, not so much at demographics, which is, you know, sort of always, you know, you always get this, this kind of thing of how do we get younger people using this or how do we get people in the north of England who are, earn over £50,000 to, to buy this product um, and actually kind of step back and think, okay, what is the attitudinal insight into these people, uh, you know, who use this product? If it's a fancy snack or something like that, that, uh, the, you know, the, these are people who are quite 
extrovert. They're quite open to new ideas. They want they're they're, they're in generous hosts, generous entertainers, um, and you know they like to surprise people. So you know it's it's sort of leaving aside how much money, what you know, sort of age, you know, sort of where somebody lives, and kind of thinking, how do I get hold of people with that sort of a psychological profile because for some of those people it may be they don't care about how much something costs for other people you may think okay well these these guys can hardly really afford this product but because it's a little bit of sophistication that you can have it's a little bit of affordable luxury that they will really bust a gut to uh you know to to buy into your brand so i think i think for me it's trying to move away from demographics and into those kind of psychographics and the other thing is to get people in moods and modes so another way to think about your audience which is again a very entertainment thinking way you know you look at the way a day is sliced on a a tv channel they know exactly say daytime tv they know exactly when you know you're up in the morning you want to be informed you want to you know have some recipe ideas for this evening you drop the kids at school you come back and suddenly you're a mum who's alone in the house you've got a lot to do but you just want a bit of companionship because you're on your own and again you know the sofa chat um sort of magazine show is is kind of what that's for so the you you know your emotions during a day are very much sort of plotted out by tv and you know i think you know we're able to do similar things with with social media advertising you think about those kind of where you punctuate the day where if you're selling mattresses what are the points of of somebody's year of somebody's week of somebody's day when they're going to be open to certain kinds of messages and to think about those moods and modes and to think you know there are times when you know everybody feels a bit like a rugged adventurer and maybe that's the time to go and sell them a jeep or sell them a big chunky rolex or something like that maybe when they just got back from holidays and they're feeling a bit tanned and things so how you um yeah so sort of thinking about people not even necessarily as yeah as as you say as kind of consistent personalities um but rather kind of how do i target either an attitude or a moment in somebody's life or even you know where those two things coincide so you know people who are open to new ideas who are starting to think about picnics is you know might be a nice little little sort of cross section of you know a certain personality in a certain frame of mind and the beauty of digital which again i think is still underused is how you can start to intervene in in those moments with a, a message that is really you know inspires people rather than interrupts them sure now brian i'm going to do something very cruel and draw a line under this today it's been great to have you with us but as we always say to one another we could go on for hours and hours and hours but purely for the for the benefit of our listeners so that we're not going on for two or three hours i'm going to draw a line but i'm going to say thank you so much for joining us it's been great to have you on here to everybody listening at home, thank you so much for tuning in this week. If you want to support the show, please go and check out our Facebook group, which is called Winning with Shopify. As mentioned in every podcast over the last few episodes, we're now going to be launching every Friday. That'll be at some point between 9am and 5pm in the UK. As I mentioned, I don't talk like this for fun. I'm actually British. So we launched it at somewhere between 9 and 5 in the UK, which means it will reach the US where I know a lot of you guys are based, probably around sort of 10am, uh, 11am New York time. So thank you so much for listening. Look out for the new podcast coming out every Friday. If you haven't already, hit the subscribe button just to get a notification every single time one of these comes out. But again, Brian, thank you so much for having us. And we'll all be back in about a week's time. 
Sign up for free for the Shopify-approved marketing course at 1000salesandbeyond.com and get our show notes at justaskparker.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening to the Winning with Shopify podcast. See you next time.